I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One and all and a warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and wherever you are in the world, it's a pleasure to have you with us. If you're a new listener to the podcast, well, welcome and do check out some of our other episodes from the past seven, that's all right, seven series, which we hope you'll enjoy too. My first guest today is a cultural critic, a thinker, and author of three acclaimed non-fiction books and the award-winning novel, The Crudo. She writes on art and culture for The Guardian and The New York Times and is here to talk about her latest book, Everybody. Olivia Lang, welcome to Book Off. Hi, I am very happy to be here. It's lovely to have you with us and I can't wait to talk about this book. Uh, and my second guest is the author of four books, including the acclaimed memoir, Fathers and Sons, which featured as Book of the Week on BBC Radio 4 and his novel, The Sea, which draws on his experience of being a diving instructor. But here to tell us about his latest novel, The Painter's Friend, it's Howard Cunnell. Hello to you. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Hi, Olivia. Hi. Thanks for having me. And I have to check in because obviously we're all in different places and this is this is a must for the start of the podcast. How is uh, my beloved Eastbourne, Howard? How is Sussex treating you? Sussex is, is marvellous. It can't be anything else. It's impossible <laughs> to be anything else but marvellous. But I have to say, it's not, the, it's not the greatest advert for the sun trap of the South today. It, it's pretty gloomy, pretty windy. But that just, you know, that's just another interest. I should go and look at the waves later. The Sunshine Coast, not so, not so sunny no. today. Aggressively yeah. okay. not, no. <laughs> and Olivia, are you are you in Suffolk at the moment? Do you join us from uh, from that coast? I am in equally damp and slightly fetid Suffolk. Um, I've just been out in the garden, yeah. and it feels deeply like autumn today. It's very strange. I wouldn't say that this was an August mm. morning. No. no. No, but uh, we will bring the sunshine through our conversation, hopefully, to, to everyone listening. <laughs> um, and over the next sort of 40, 50 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your two fabulous books, as I mentioned, and your writing and the fact that although these are very different books in some ways, there is a lot of crossover and there's a lot of themes that I think are shared. And of course, we do the book off um, at the end of the podcast. This is where you'll each get three minutes to tell us about a book that you absolutely love and why you think we should all read it. But before we get into a fight, let's remain friends um, and talk about Olivia, if I may, everybody. Um, is it 
is it true that you actually started thinking about this book it, sort of over 20 years ago? Am I right in thinking that? I, I don't know that I thought of it as a book, but I was certainly thinking about the ideas in it. Really, right back to the early 90s, I was I dropped out of university, I became a road protester, and then I trained as a herbalist. So I was thinking about the body as a source of resistance and power, the bodies on the streets, bodies that can change the world, if you like. And at the same time, I was also thinking about bodies and how they get sick, bodies and how they can heal. So, you know, those sort of threads have, have been fascinating me for a very, very long time. And they definitely kind of erupt out into into this book 20 years later, yeah. 20 years later, exactly. Um, and as you say, it is, it's about bodies. I mean, it's about so much. And it, it's, it's almost as if we need two or three podcasts to be able to cover everything that's in this book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's about existing in a body. It's, it's about... Um, what people perceive of other people's bodies just if you can just tell it tell us for those that haven't read this what the book is essentially about I think it's really about why it is so hard to inhabit a body why certain bodies are subject to such violence such hatred why people are abused because of the type of body they inhabit not because of who they are as an individual but because of the kind of body they're inside but it's also about the great freedom struggles of the 20th century so it's about feminism and the civil rights movement and gay liberation and sexual liberation it's about lots of people struggle through time to fight for the rights to be judged equally no matter what body they live inside and it has got such amazing characters in it there's Nina Simone the you know the great singer who was also a major figure in the civil rights movement and who speaks so eloquently and articulately about racism Malcolm X as well the civil rights leader um, it's got writers in it, it's got Susan Sontag, it's got the feminist Andrea Dworkin, a very difficult character who I think in this era of Me Too and Reclaim the Night, she's she's more um, relevant and important than ever. So it's a really populated book, it's got a lot of bodies in it. And although it goes to some really difficult places and is about violence and abuse and all these things that we're reading about in the papers all the time I think it's also a positive and hopeful book because it is about how all of us are capable of changing the world we're in I completely agree with that um I, I do think it's a positive book and I want to come back to talk more about specifically some of the points raised in it and also you know what what myself and other readers might take from it um Howard if I could just talk to, to you about the painter's friend mm-hmm. um it's very interesting that very recently, and I'm talking about in the last sort of couple of weeks, I have been uh, getting up early and going for walks along the canal, one of the canals here in, in London. And I've become fascinated by canal boats and the people that live on them. And I've been sort of just looking like every day that I'm going down the canal, just seeing if anyone, you know, who's on them, has any of, have any of them changed, are there new ones? And then I read your book and I just feel like that's, it's very timely that I started walking down canals and looking at the boats because that yeah. is exactly what, well, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about. Yes. Um, the, the the location that you're talking about, the island that the, the book's set on, is um, it's a couple of, it's a couple of, it comes from a couple of places, really. I mean, the, in the first instance, it, it when I was 19, I lived on an island very much like that, on a houseboat 
very much like the houseboat that, that Terry lives on. It's part of this uh, kind of rackety youth and young life. Um, and so there was, uh, I don't, and, and it had stayed with me that, that year, that year on the island had stayed with me for lots of reasons. And then I guess because I wanted to write in part a book about a process that I'd seen all around me in my in the South London neighbourhoods that I was living in, but I didn't want to write a straightforward kind of documentary protest novel stating you know um, stating things that people could kind of see around them. So I I chose to make it the island, um, a, a place that people had fallen to to some degree. Uh, after a long process, but also a place that people had electively chosen to go and live in and create lives for themselves that were, to use a hideous phrase, but just a shorthand, you know, kind of off-grid, uh, you know, uh, non-mainstream kind of life. So there was that combination of people that yeah. were, had nowhere else to go, but there were also people there that had nowhere else they wanted to go. And Terry's negotiating with those feelings as much as he's negotiating with, um, he's negotiating with ideas of belonging and searching for yeah. searching for cultures that he thinks have been lost as much as uh, as much as anything else. But you know, I dream about that island. I dream about living there. Uh, the only thing that that that's missing from the book that was there in real life because I just thought it was too much to put in. But the boat I lived on, uh, one of its great features was it had a functioning jukebox on the in the wheelhouse. Oh wow! So, <laughs> but, so you could kind of sit there. You know, <laughs> With a cup of tea, looking out the window, listening to sounds, you know, and it, you know, it's brilliant, it's brilliant jukebox. So, yeah. And what was it? Was it forty fives or? Yeah, forty fives, absolutely. Oh, wow. yeah, we're talking a long time ago. We're talking early eighties. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. But I, I wish I wish book. that had crept into the book. Uh, but, yeah, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wouldn't have fitted. Actually, it kind of, <laughs> I am denied about it, but in the end, no, it couldn't go in. <laughs> Nobody's got a jukebox. Say, um, yeah, no, it's your jukebox. On the bonnet, uh, because we we should say that Terry is is an artist. Um, yeah. Your your protagonist, um, and I want you to to tell us a little bit about the story in a moment. I I am an art collector, um, and more and more, like more and more, I'm thinking about the value of art. I'm thinking about things that I'm buying and whether I'm buying it direct from an artist, which I do do. Whether I'm buying it from a, a you know a, a gallery. Um, and I think that what I loved, one of the many things I loved about this book is it asks who gets to be an artist and also what it means for an artist to, or what people expect from an artist. Yeah. So I wondered where that that sort of it, the germ of an idea, that, that, that part of the book, that theme came from. My life, really, I think. Um, talking, answering the question who gets to be an artist in this country is kind of, it's kind of interesting, uh, but for me, what? But it's kind of also. It doesn't take a lot of digging in the history of uh, English literature or English culture, um, and I say English uh, specifically. To you can only all you got to do is look at the case of someone like John Clare, um, or and later John Healy, or take any um, working class artist. I think, and you'll see the ways in which working-class artists are only allowed conditional access um, to the art world. So, who gets to be an artist? Is, is that that question is it's, it's 
hugely significant and hugely important and hugely current. But for me, the the really interesting question was um, exploring the idea of what what responsibilities um, there are um, in in being an artist. What are you, what's it for beyond self-expression or a, a need or a compulsion or a desire for this this that or the other? Um, you know, I'm a, I, there's not a lot of choice for me in being a writer. It's just is is that that thing that we are, you know. Um, so I don't have to think about why um, I, I'm a writer particularly, but I do have to think about what I'm doing with it. What's it for, you know? Is it simply mm-hmm. for my own entertainment or to, or to, or to demonstrate, you know, you know my, my brilliance? <laughs> and have people, and have people, have people throw flowers at me. I'll tell but, you it. Yeah. Yes, quite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people, people throw flowers at me as I walk down the street. Um, or is there something something else going on? And that I think... A couple of things happened really to make me really dig into that question, and one was that my my mother died, and so and uh, in that period I thought a lot about where she had come from, and about a culture that I thought was perhaps certainly fractured and perhaps disappearing, and that kind of post Second World War working class culture, um, and then in the where I was living. In, in, in South London, uh, in Brixton specifically, you know there was this process of there was this process of gentrification going on, and this process of people being being uh, moved away from their neighbourhoods uh, for the simple reason that the people that wanted to move in had more money. Um, and as this was going on, there's an there's a, an estate in South London by Brockwell Park called Cressingham Gardens, and it's beautifully it's um, a, a Ted Hollenby designed. Um, hmm. estate overlooking Brockwell Park, right, which means it's overlooking, it's looking north towards London, so the views are spectacular. And people who live there, for, it's been there for since I think, it's, I'd say the 60s, 70s. And because of this process of, uh, of gentrification, it's now very desirable. The, the, the council haven't invested in the place for ages because they're trying to get it run down enough so they can shift people out and, and build, you know, very, very, very nice developments. And I have a friend, an artist, yeah. Mark Aiken, who works, who uh, lives on the estate, and he took a bunch of photographs of the of the people that live there, and uh, then what he did, which I think is brilliant, and you'll see the connection because you've read the book, is that he blew these photographs up so they were huge prints, and he placed them on the exterior walls of the estate, and I first saw these pictures on a kind of on a summer evening, just walking around with Mark having a look, and they're incredibly powerful images of of people who would otherwise be invisible, frankly, I think, and considered less important because they had less money. It's one of the one of the yeah. one of the one of the legacies of Thatcherism, unfortunately, that value is that that, that um, equation is always there, you know. So that so those those were kind of some of the I mean there's a whole bunch of other ideas in there about why what what uh, what you might owe or not owe, but certainly, certainly those those are some of the primary kind of influences on on the themes, on the ideas in the book. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and again, you know, there's there's so much to talk about here in this book, in both of your books. Um, Olivia, does does what Howard said there sort of resonate to you as a as an artist yourself and and, and a writer and just you know 
do, do you ever question why what I'm doing who's it for that that sort of thing oh yeah I mean I think all my books are very politically motivated and you know increasingly so I'm always thinking about that but the thing that particularly struck me about Howard's book which I read yesterday and sort of pretty much a frenzy I loved it so much um you know I lived that kind of life I think Howard and I both lived as sort of that squatting travellers kind of underworld really so a sort of world within the world and you know you to have that described is very rare to to experience that inside a book is very rare and generally when people write about it they don't do it very well because they haven't lived it so for me the details and the practicalities of living outdoors were you know absolutely accurate the kind of people who end up in those encampments felt very accurate and afterwards it left me you know, I write about this a bit in everybody, my my experiences of living on road protests in the 90s. And I found myself remembering all of these people who ended up on protests who weren't necessarily there because they wanted to do something about the environment so much as it was a safe space outside of the ordinary world. And I remember one night um, a woman with two children in a caravan appeared overnight on the run because her kids were about to be taken into care. And they lived with us for the summer hadn't thought about them in years in fact there were two families who were on the run and they ended up there and then there was somebody who he was actually called damaged this sort of big thug who had kind of drifted from prison to various sites and was sort of moving through them kind of a scammer and very violent it turned out and so those sort of people that you describe in your novel just felt so real to me it felt so accurate and that sense of trying to push back against an impossible force felt to me very similar to to the experience of protest in the 90s where all this ingenuity and creativity is going into something that you actually aren't going to be able to stop at all so the the feelings of despair that run through it as well felt felt very accurate I loved I loved Howard's book I really thought it was wonderful thanks so much for saying so I mean I think that point you make about um books written from the inside and books written from the outside. You know, the majority of books that uh, that um, deal with the world I come from have been written from the outside by, by uh, uh, I was going to say the word tourist, but it sounds a bit pejorative, but you know, even, Or- <laughs> even Orwell, who I revere as a, as a pro stylist, is, is someone writing from the outside. Jack London someone writing from the outside. Geoffrey Fletcher's writing from the outside. That I guess that's something that I can, when I think about writing, that's something that I can offer in, in some senses. That's something I can contribute is to write from inside. I would just caveat all of that. Everything we've said about um, where book, where the books come from and the ideas that govern the book. I'm sorry, there's someone testing the fire alarm outside. If you can hear that, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's slightly distracting. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Olivier would... would, would uh, agree with this is that first and foremost uh, what I wanted to make was a piece of art mm. you know that not reportage quite yeah or and not a polemic and not a you know yeah. it's a it, I wanted it to be a living work of art and that was the that's the thing that keeps you up in the morning gets you up in the morning for five years every day uh, absolutely at sentence level what can I do at sentence level what can I do with this image how can I dramatize these ideas how can I illuminate these ideas through uh, it, it, imagery and action rather than kind of hitting people over the head with, with mine. 
uh, it's, you know, no one, no one comes to read my novels for, you don't want to lecture in Marxism or anything. So, you know. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with lectures in Marxism. You know. it, it, that's not what you read novels for. That's not what you read novels for. So that's, you know, for me, it's the, the thing is the, is the sentence. It's the, it's the work on the sentence. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just think there's what we what we said just before we started recording when we all settled in and we were sort of saying hello is that I think you Olivia said oh it's amazing how much these books have in common mm. um and I I wondered if I know you've you read Howard's book very recently so it's it's very fresh and um how do you read Olivia's book over the last couple of weeks or whenever it was but did you did you think that knowing that you were doing this with you know together did you get that same sense well we've got a character in common which feels wild we've got a character in common well i start you know i i've read all of olivia's books i mean i know yours is a fictional character construct but we're literally describing the same paintings we are using this we describe the same paintings and we describe the same we talk about the same painter although obviously mine veiled um, and a different nationality, but we're certainly the same person. We talk about Agnes, we both write about Agnes Martin. We're both affected yeah. by her work a great deal. Um, and actually, she's a, she, although she's not named in my novel, although she, she, she appears as a kind of, she's part of this constructed character, Ariel Galton, who's, a, who's a, an English abstract painter in, this, in, in my novel. But um, her work had a profound effect on me in terms of thinking about... Um, how power is transmitted through through works of art, and especially in her case, the mystery of how power is transmitted through works of art, because she takes out forms and she takes out people, and eventually she takes out colour. And yet these paintings have an extraordinary, I mean, really extraordinary, unprecedented emotional power, I think. And what's that about? Is that about me bringing my receptiveness to this stuff? Or is it, and because the space allows you to think about it. So yeah, Agnes Martin, hugely significant, but also the stuff about the body. I mean, you know, Fathers and Sons is a book about bodies in many respects. Um, and it's also a book about the ways in which uh, the difficulties surrounding, for example, the trans- transgender community are difficulties imposed on people through a, by a culture and by a society. So had my son been born in a different culture, in a different society, where um, mm. b- being transgender wasn't seen as a, an inverted commas problem, and he wasn't seen in inverted commas as a freak, right? then a great many of his problems, uh, psychological problems that came with uh, mm. inhabiting a body that he felt was not his, wouldn't have existed. So that relationship between cultural norms, the way the culture sets out uh, normative behaviour and what it excludes from that, that really um, chimes with me and with my concerns. But, and, but the other thing it did is it made me think about, years ago I did a, um, I was an academic writer and my PhD was on uh, American prison narratives by then. And in particular, I was looking at the way in which these, yeah, I was looking at the way in which these, so Malcolm X in your book was it, I was looking at the ways in which these narratives by men, whether they're revolutionary uh, narratives like someone like George Jackson um, or Cleaver, or they're books of kind of existentialist individual white heroes like someone like Edward Bunker, 
all of these narratives written by men uh, privilege the idea of a, of a body being transformed into a hyper-masculine um, shape in order mm -hmm. to kind of define your status within the prison. So that really, again, that really struck me about the ways in which your environment um, can force you, encourage you, uh, make you think that one changes one's body in certain ways. Uh, so yeah, all of that was absolutely fascinating. And in particular, what I loved about uh, Olivia's book was that it got me thinking about Wilhelm Reich again, whose story and whose ideas are just so compelling and so, I don't know, I, it just, you, you, you think about Reich and you think about what he believed in and why he believed in these things and what was going on in terms of the external pressures and the internal pressures and the rest of it. And it's just an absolutely riveting kind of narrative, mm. I think. So on that kind of storytelling level, I loved all that stuff. And of course, having been a, having written about Karaik and having, having been very kind of saturated in the world of yeah. kind of beat scholarship, Reich, this kind of figure, often seen on kind of yeah. far horizons, not particularly near horizons, but he's there all the time as this kind of figure of influence. And the fact that Burroughs, whose, whose mind and intellect and clarity of thinking I had admired, that it's always puzzled me and interested me and intrigued me that he was so receptive to, to Reich's ideas. So all of that just gets me going, really, it stirs me up and off I go buying books that Olivia's <laughs> recommended that are in Olivia's reading <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So it's Coming it's down the rabbit hole of the break. You know, the trip, well, absolutely, the trip to Echo Spring was exactly the same. I just went charging off. You know. So it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And Olivia, we should we should talk about Reich because there may be people listening who who don't know of Wilhelm Reich. And I of course, think I should say who Reich is. Yeah, I think we I think we need to to, to talk about it because because we know we know, but not everyone is going to know. So Reich, I mean, Howard's right. Reich is an extraordinary figure, and he's oft, he's in the background of a lot of different people's stories. So I think I'd been aware of him for a long time without totally knowing, you know, who he was, and he he um. He was Freud's most brilliant protégé. So he starts out in Austria as a young psychoanalyst. Before that, actually, he was a soldier in the First World War. So he comes in young, very poor, almost starving, encounters psychoanalysis as he's training to be a doctor. And he loves it. He's, he's brilliant at it. But at this point, psychoanalysis is in a very early stage. And Though Freud has many ideas about what causes symptoms, what causes neurosis, the idea of a cure is still very kind of blurry. And Reich's seeing his patients. He, he's an impatient man and he's seeing his patients and he starts thinking, it's not about what they're saying. What they're saying is one thing, but at the same time, their bodies are communicating all the time to him. They're communicating about suppressed pain. They're communicating about all kinds of woundedness or rage that they can't put into words, they can't articulate. And actually, you know, how it's in your book, you've got descriptions of people whose faces are completely mm. set, and yet they're communicating yeah. all the feelings. They're not aware that they're communicating all the feelings behind that sense mm. of setness. So I think we're all aware of how other people's bodies transmit to us stuff about their emotional history. And what Wright thought is that you could act on that directly, that you could reach in behind the body armour and allow the body to release its feelings, its burden of feelings from the past. Now, this is his first revelation. And then the second revelation is 
it's political. What's happening to the patients he's seeing isn't just about the family. It's not just what Freud says. It's about poverty. It's about poor housing. It's about the kind of work environments they're in. It's about addiction. It's about abuse. So he has this much larger sense of how people get damaged and what you can do about that damage. And he becomes an anti-fascist. He's very active against Hitler in the 1930s in Berlin. He ends up having to go on the run. And the problem with Reich is if you're in, if you're trying to unite too many disciplines, people get angry with you. So he is, he was working in the Communist Party and he was thrown out of the Communist Party for being a psychoanalyst. Immediately afterwards, he was thrown out of the psychoanalytic institution for being a communist. And in fact, as I sort of burrowed into that, it turned out, and this is really shocking about psychoanalysis, he was actually thrown out of the psychoanalytic institution for being an anti-fascist because Freud wanted to stay neutral under Hitler. He didn't understand that you had to resist fascism. He believed that you could just sort of keep your head down. And Reich said, no, we have to fight this. And he became, you know, almost a sacrifice to the Nazis to allow psychoanalysis to continue in Germany. And that kind of broke him, that sort of destroyed him. So he came to America and he started reinventing himself really he what he wanted to do was prove his ideas biologically he believed that there was a kind of radiant energy that ran through everything and he invented this device called an organ accumulator that people sat inside and he thought they became charged up with good energy and they would no longer be traumatized they would no longer be vulnerable to fascism they would be healthy and healed so it's a, it's a beautiful fantasy but it is a fantasy and Amazingly, this device got him into conflict with the Food and Drug Administration in America, and he was pursued for a decade. They spent a quarter of their resources on him. This is this is an agency set up to find out about things that are, um, you know, fake drugs, so things that could endanger people, solutions that pharmaceutical solutions that are false. And he'd invented a box that wasn't hurting anybody. It was it was not true but it wasn't hurting anybody and yet they pursued him with unbelievable diligence and he ended up in prison and he died in a prison cell they burnt his books including books like the mass psychology of fascism which had been burnt by the nazis so you know he's this figure who sort of spans continents he was involved in all sorts of different liberation movements his work was very inspiring to feminists the andrew dworkin who generally didn't think a great deal of male thinkers said he was the only sexual liberationist who aboard who aboard rape really and he came from a very violent family his father was very abusive to his mother and she ended up killing herself and it seemed to me that the bottom line of Reich is that he had a vision of sexuality and people's lives in which they could be free of these structures women could be sexual without being subject to the oppressions of patriarchy people who were of working class origins could be free without having to live inside these structures of such oppression and inequality so he, he has this sort of beautiful utopian vision and yet he ended up in prison so I was trying to write this book about the body and wherever I looked there was right he just crept into every area of it so it ended up being in part in part a biography of Reich. it's interesting isn't it Olivia that um the, a figure like Reich, who who would 
who could not do who would not correctly divorce sexual the possibility of sexual freedom from the possibility of class freedom he's the one that gets pursued he's the one that gets that yeah. gets pursued into into, into mental because illness and into prison and into it's... death because that, as soon as you yeah. start doing that as soon as you connect the class system with patriarchy yeah. and you see patriarchy is what it is which is a function of the class system then you start getting some powerful enemies it seems to me and it, it's so telling that the mass psychology of fascism was burned by the nazis and by and by the americans and didn't you say in the don't you say in the book somewhere that um that was the only, the last book that was the last book burning, or the only book burning. It's the, in the only States. book burning, right? Run by the America. I mean, individual yeah. states sometimes have done, but America as a nation has only burnt one person's books, yeah. and that's right. So well, it, that's, that's it's right, pretty yeah. extraordinary. That wow. And when you think about, you know, you think about a book burning like a sort of show thing, like you burn one book and it's a symbol. But no, they were trying to burn his entire every copy of his books his writings his diaries that is erasing somebody from history that's somebody whose message is so dangerous perceived to be so dangerous that it has to be wiped out altogether although of course you know it it has completely the opposite effect (laughs) in that in that it actually you know he survives through that and it becomes part of this story and part of this story of resistance narratives you know if you try and burn a book it will at some point come back and you know the 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 sense of him generally, if when people do know him, is that he's kind of a wacko, and the early ideas, the incredibly incisive early ideas, have been buried by everything that happened later. So, you know, thank God for people like Burroughs and Kerouac who do preserve some sense mm. of him. But at the same time, I don't think fans like Norman Mailer, you know, big swinging Dick Norm, really do have any. No, no Norman doesn't you help. Get the sense. He doesn't. He doesn't help anybody. <laughs> Norman doesn't help anybody. No, so, no. I remember that yeah. line of Gore Vidal. You know, for one, not 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 for the first time, words fail Norman Mailer. Um, <laughs> I mean, Carrack didn't. Carrack was someone who didn't. Um, that was after he hit Vidal, of course. Vidal, I've seen a lot for the first time. Carrack um, <laughs> was skeptical, uh, I, I think, but Burroughs certainly was engaged in the ideas. But it, it, it does it does struck me. It does strike me that that that. That as soon as somebody talks about unpicking the wider um, systems of power and domination, that's when you start getting into trouble. And you talk about right. Um, you're quite right. You know, in, amongst people who I know that have spoken to him, he, beca- he 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 was kind of a bit of a joke figure, precisely because we hadn't bothered to look for or ha- heard the real story. So your book offers this really great corrective to that to that kind of presumptive mythology about him. I think. So it's immensely valuable, especially all the material about class and the body. I think it's absolutely vital for people to 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 to, to note that and to get that. Well, that that early stuff about body armor just just seems to me so fascinating. This sense that you know it's it's like that book, The Body Keeps the Score, that everyone's reading now, which is a huge bestseller, and mm. he's saying exactly the same message as Reich that the things that happen to us, the the um, rage or shame or fear that we experience in childhood and aren't able to fully express it stays with us there's a legacy and you you see in people's faces and it it did just strike me so much how you've described that Howard because it was Mm. you put it very beautifully thank you it's also work as well and there's a beautiful story by the Canadian short story writer called Alistair MacLeod that's in his book um the Lost Salt Gift of Blood, and it's a book, it's a story called The Closing Down of Summer, and the, and the story is essentially about a group of uh, deep uh, uh, mine workers 
in in Canada on vacation. Like they're not on vacation in the sense they're not in golf carts whizzing around. They're on this deserted beach, uh, just kind of drinking uh, drinking uh, overproof alcohol and, and sitting in the sun. But what McLeod does is he describes their naked bodies in the context of the damage that their incredibly stressful physical work underground has has done to them. And he he takes you through the signs. You know, one arm lowered than the other, or missing fingers, or great welts that have been ripped out of people's bodies because they've been hit by falling rocks and what have you. And so that idea of not just the internal um, crises and, yeah. and problems that we, that we all carry that, that form our physical way of being, but also the, the work you do, you know, yeah. the physical work you do, how it ages you, how hard physical labor ages you. So that I thought, again, you know, it was another, yes, excellent. when I was reading the book, you know, that you, you bring that in as well. Yeah. I was thinking just the other night, uh, we're recording this in August and I've been watching uh, bits of the Olympics um, and the coverage on the BBC and often I get tuned into a a point where they're focusing on an athlete, be it a great British athlete or whoever, who's, as they quote, body let them down, you know, and it's, it's this fine line between being one of the most fittest people in the world where your body is you know um, um, able to do these incredible things like run a world record and yet you you step over that line and it's you know you, you've pushed it too far and it was I was reading everybody watching a bit of the Olympics and I was like oh yeah you know this it, it's it's amazing when you start thinking about what where does it go sort of almost full circle where does it go we've we've reached the peak of fitness or what we would consider you know being the most incredible body and then and then oh no it, we're just breaking it mm. by doing that you know absolutely and also you know these athletes are always working within the sort of the grid of gender and race as well that they, those narratives are always going on somebody like Simone Biles you see the kind of it, abuse she gets on social media that is to do with race that's to do with being a black woman representing her country so I think it you can have in one sense the perfect body the sporting prowess body but you still can't escape from the social narrative of ideas about what our types of bodies mean or what we're permitted to do what we're not allowed to do I think that's one of the um it's one of the uh after the fact uh, reasons for for my uh, kind of a quarter of a century passion for for diving and for being underwater. Um, mm. Now, in one sense, um, you know, I became a diving instructor because I couldn't afford to go diving. I couldn't pay to go diving, so I needed to have a job where people paid me to go diving. So, as everywhere else, the class and economics and all that kind of stuff does factor into who goes diving. And also, it's also a fact that the majority of people that go diving are wealthy Western people diving in, in poorer, browner countries. Do you know what I mean? Having said that, underwater is the is is a site of is a site of kind of body freedom and body expression and body difference and different experiences of inhabiting a body um, that are as close to being free. Um, that I've encountered, you know, that you that you're liberated from, mm. from from the from the properties that hold you to the earth, if, if you if you like, that you're flying, you know, flying through 
flying flying through water, you know, is uh, is as close to kind of a pure freedom as much as I'm ever going to get. I think, and I think that's definitely part of why it's so um, persistently that I love it so much. You know, that it's that it's that it's something that I'm drawn back to doing over and over again, and just being in the water generally. You know, which is why I'm here. It's funny. Because when I wrote the trip to Echo Spring, which is the book about writers and alcohol, male writers and alcohol, you know, they were looking for freedom in the bottle. But also over and over again, there was stuff about water, swimming, fishing for all of them that they had that sense that water allowed them the sense of a free kind of body or a purified kind of body. It comes up in their stories. There are stories by Fitzgerald and Hemingway, especially so that that sense of just losing all the things that you're... And Carver was a great fisherman, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tennessee Williams loved to swim. So that, that, yeah. I mean, I've been obsessed with... I mean, I write about water all the time. So, I mean, that's, you know, light and water are essentially what all of my books are about. And there's kind of stories (laughs) sometimes, you know. But um, it's it's because if you grow up in a three... Joe, you'll know this because you're from here. So if you grow up in a three-sided world with all that openness... Mm -hmm on one side and all that light and all that sky and all that water it changes your ideas about what are, what are possible even for poor kids even for kids like me it changed it it, it, it was life-saving that sense of freedom that was or potential freedom that was folded in to the landscape and to the light that i was born into you know yeah um and you spent a lot of time in brighton didn't you so i mean you know we get that yeah. that light and that openness it does it yeah. does feed into every part of your life just in terms of your sensory perceptions but also in terms of the way you th- the way i think certainly the way i write what i want to write about you know so yeah absolutely i think and that's probably one of the reasons why i'm drawn to to some of those writers you know who are obsessed with water and isn't there something to be said for the sea or indeed you know rivers and, and canals and things that um that that it does you know anybody mm. can go in them you know and in a mm. in a sense it's not it's it's not as um elitist perhaps i mean obviously mm. well i don't know about that joe <laughs> i'm afraid go on no t- go on i think me. it's a bit more complicated than that because i think people own beaches yeah. don't they people own land well it's also you know one of the things i loved about living in Vauxhall in south london generally was that i could walk up the river uninterrupted unimpeded yeah. Um, and now, of course, you can't because there's, there's people are building tower blocks there, and they're saying you can't walk across this piece of land by the river because it's ours; it belongs mm-hmm. to us. So, essentially, what they're doing, of course, is they're is they're screening one of those you know, one of the great free sites of, of of London life from poor people. Is what they're doing essentially. And then, and down here, what's interesting, this is something I saw in Brixton that used to absolutely infuriate me so much so that I had to leave. Um, which is the privatisation <laughs> of public spa- the privatisation of public space? You'll go to Brockwell Park in Brixton, and there'll be someone running a, a massive yoga class, taking up a huge corner of it. If I go to the beaches here, the same phenomenon is happening. You'll see people running exercise classes on beaches, right? Now they're getting paid to do that to do that stuff, and of course, if it's not something that anyone would you know object to on a on a kind of kind of basic level, there's nothing wrong with it. But what it does is it does privatise public spaces. And if there were, you know, mm. 10 beaches and eight of them had classes on, you know, what's free then? You know, that kind of thing. So we have to be dangerous. Oh, sorry, we have to be careful, I think, about taking this yeah. stuff for granted or thinking that anything yeah. really is free of the politics of um, 
I'm sorry to say, I'm not going to sound like someone on the street corner, but to say that someone, anything's free from the politics of capitalism and systems of domination, that's just not right, you know, I'm afraid, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a lot about that in The Lonely City, the way that gentrification worked in New York to drive the most impoverished and vulnerable to the margins to make them invisible to take to take them out of the center city and i think you see that also it happened in brighton in the 20 years that i was there that brighton went mm-hmm. from being you know sort of notoriously free space hippie town to incredibly corporate and commercial and a lot of those building endeavors were cited on the beach because that's the place that people yeah. want to come to so that's the place where you can make a profit i mean this is exactly the narrative yeah. of your of your novel it's mm. it, it's exactly. so much yeah. about those places are attractive for a reason and somebody clocks why they're attractive and thinks, well, I can make money mm-hmm. out of this. And you Makes know, the money, yep. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is, I've, I've learned something. <laughs> a, a, a viewpoint has been changed and changed go. quite rightly. Um, before we get to the uh, book off, um, I, I don't think we've actually, Howard, sort of uh, talked about the story of the painter's friend so perhaps you could just give us a we've talked a lot about the book but perhaps you could just tell us about terry's story for those listening because i'm not sure we, we, i've done a very good job of, it, of explaining what the book's about I, I don't think i'm going to do a very good job either really because it's um, <laughs> you know one of the things about one of the things about writing of course is you you write stuff down that it's not easy to explain yep um and you and you and you get the chance to rewrite over and over again until you kind of get it, get it to some degree. You know, <laughs> you get, you get, so true. You get to the point where it makes sense. You know what I mean? Um, what's the book about? It's about it's about a whole bunch of things. You know, it's about dogs. It's about painting. It's about it's about community. It's about loss. It's about grief. It's about greed. It's about capitalism. Um, essentially, it's a story about a, a, a working class painter who believes that he's been. Um, ripped off, badly treated, um, robbed of his one chance to enter this mythical space of the kind of middle-class art world that's going to make all all these problems disappear. And he finds himself um, kind of outcast and he has no money, but he he hears about a a kind of houseboat that's um, not a kind of houseboat, a houseboat that's uh, for sale on on this island that he's never heard of before, which is which may or may not be on the River Thames, and it may or may not be uh, in a city like, you know, near a city like mm-hmm. London, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he, but he's kind of fairly pr- a private individual. Uh, he's fairly woebegone and downtrodden by this point. He's kind of getting on, getting on into his 50s. He's got some addiction issues, um, and he really wants to be left alone, really. But the community of people that he gradually discovers as the seasons change on the island um, draw draw him into to, to their ongoing struggles to, to for a viable existence and he begins to see traces of a kind of communal life that he first and last encountered as a troubled kid uh, many years before and what he's one of the things that I wanted to do in the book is that a great many working class narratives, if you can call this book a working class narrative, but a great many of those books, they're about, they're escape narratives. They're about philosophy. They're about getting out of the working class, getting into this other mythical. I mean, Dickens is the prototype, but, but they, but they all do it. Um, and what Terry's trying to do is he's trying to get back. 
he's trying to find his way back to and to see if anything that he recognizes of, 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 of working class culture and community exists anyway. And he thinks he finds, doesn't articulate it in this sense, but he responds to the community, certain members of the community, and he responds to their struggle. And then because they're in a struggle, he kind of has to ask himself, what, how can I contribute to this struggle? So the island that the people are living on, uh, the owner of the island wants to develop develop it um, and basically it initiates a, 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 a rent increase that will drive people away because they can't afford any kind of increase let alone a kind of 250 quid a, a year increase and so there's a kind of resi- there's a resistance amongst the amongst the amongst the people and terry um, gets involved um, and i won't go any further than that because obviously i you know don't want to give away give away the story but the other thing that happens is that um Terry meets a dog um, and that he kind of inadvertently ends up adopting a, a dog. So a, a great deal of my time was 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 spent developing that relationship. Um, I, I just want to say is I'm a big fan of dog narratives, but it was one of the best dog narratives I've ever. It's like you remind me of Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones, which had an incredible pit bull called China. All right, I don't know that. I feel like you'd love it, Howard. It's really I'm, amazing. No, it's, a, it's a Hurricane Katrina novel. Oh right. And it's oh, wow. red is like China. It's you're going to be into it, but um, yeah, I thought you wrote about dogs very, very beautifully. Thank you. I did that. Yeah. So, so yes. I mean, I was trying to create a world, and I was trying to create, a, a, as I say, a, a piece of art. But if you if you hold me down and, and kind of shine a light in my face and ask me about the ideas, that there's some of the ideas. But the, yeah. the other thing I'd say about it though is that. <laughs> I kind of I'd like to write in such a way that the white spaces are as important as the as the words on the page. So my aim is not to explain things in the novel and not to hammer things down, but to but to allow people to readers to bring their own interpretation of events to to the narrative, so that there's a con, there's a conversation. So what happens? So to answer the question, what happens? Well, partly that's kind of up to you what you think happens. Yeah. And what you think of the struggle and what you think of the people and what you think of their way of life and all the rest of it. So, you know. Yeah, which is, which I, I, I thought was absolutely what I thought towards the end. And, and it actually, for both of these books, because Olivia, you, you present, or the book presents many ideas, but ultimately you're allowing the reader to draw their own conclusions as well, aren't Always. you? Always, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to me that there isn't a sort of, bite-sized conclusion that you can take away it really it's a book that should end with the reader having a sense of well what does freedom mean to me and what can I contribute to this this long long struggle this sort of transgenerational struggle so I want a reader to go somewhere in a book I want a reader to go to new places and to travel and I don't have a strong idea of where I want them to come out it's it's really up to them I want them to have a lot of agency in my books the last thing I was going to say about that was that the other one of the other reasons that my stuff's kind of open-ended in my head, there's a there's the possibility of a trilogy here. There's a possibility. I think the next book is connected with this one. So, so the you know, I'm keeping my options open. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> except in, well, except let's in see. some instances where there's no coming back from certain events. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I nearly um, just said a massive spoiler, but I managed to rein myself it. back. Oh, well done. <laughs> oh. I could have edited it out. So. <laughs> 
I always ask my guests what they've been reading recently because it's fascinating to find out um, what's on the on the reading piles, whether that's research for the next book or if it's just for enjoyment. Um, so, Howard, is there is there something that you've been reading recently that you you want to mention? This is this is not your book off book. This is just something that may have uh, struck a chord with you over the last. I'm so few excited months. about this because I was going to cheat actually and mention this in the in the. In my three minutes, I was going to say, "Oh, can I mention seven other books?" That oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I've been reading a bunch of stuff. I mean, but the, the, what I'm reading at the moment is I'm working my way through the novels of Penelope Fitzgerald, and I am kind of awestruck. Really, I know I'm quite late to the party here about recognising <laughs> this singular uh, English genius of a writer, but um, I'd read her novel offshore a long time ago like about 18 months before i started writing mm-hmm. the painter's friend because it's set on she lived on and then peter Gerald lived on a houseboat for a time in uh, near chelsea and she and she writes brilliantly about that world and so it was an obvious you know gentle influence uh, on that but i've just been reading my way through um through all the novels starting with the bookshop and then gates of angels and i'm currently reading innocent and there's a lovely quote on the back of Innocence from C.K. Stead uh, from the London Review of Books when he says, I keep asking myself, how does she do it? So these novels seem quite quiet. They're mostly quite slight, although The Innocence is a big, lovely big flat book. Um, and they, they seem to be quite conversational. They seem to be quite um, not jammed, packed with action, you know, very quiet, quiet books. But, the, but her clarity of expression so the choices, what she doesn't write and what she does write, so what she writes, her, her choices and the clarity of expression, which is also coupled with a fantastic ambiguity of meaning. So you get a brilliant tension between this absolutely clearly, beautifully expressed. I mean, the quality of her expression is the thing that you kind of put the book down and go, well, there's no point in me carrying on because frankly, look at what she can do. You know, <laughs> I mean, breathtaking stuff, really. I'm not, you know, um, and she makes you laugh out loud with the unexpectedness of her transitions. So, you know, you read a lot of fiction where uh, secondary characters tend to act as straight men or women to the to the main protagonist, or whatever the main protagonist says, they're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of bouncing board. Well, it, brilliantly in her novels, it's almost as though no one ever listens to one another. <laughs> you know, that they talk across one another and they talk across purposes, but never, never um, for its own sake. So everything's there, is there for a reason, and that, that will become clear later on. Um, in, I just, just to maybe give you the flavour of how, how brilliant she is, if you haven't read it, the, the, the beginning of the novel called The Bookshop, which is a, a novel about a woman who wants to open a bookshop in a, in a, in a town in uh, Suffolk, and her, her, what that does to the, to the local community. But very early on in that novel, there's a scene where she's walking across a meadow where a horse uh, is being attended to by a friend of hers, and, and he's the the man is trying to file the horse's teeth whilst having a conversation with the protagonist of the novel, and he asks the protagonist of the novel, uh, forgive me because the books aren't here, I'll give you their name, if she wouldn't mind holding the horse's tongue out of the way while he files the teeth. This is on page six or something, you know, <laughs> and they're talking about the wisdom or not the wisdom of opening a bookshop. And you, you can feel it, see it, and more, and of course it's so unexpected. So that's the other thing about mm. her stuff is that 
you know, crikey, I've read thousands and thousands of novels and, and obviously you get to the point where you can often predict the next course of events or you can see things being foreshadowed or you guess. I never know what's going to happen in a book. Never, ever, can never tell. She always takes you by surprise. Absolute genius. I'm so, the only regret I have is that she was one of my mother's great favourite writers and we never got to talk about her because I haven't read her until, uh, until now. But if you haven't read Penelope Fitzgerald, stop whatever you're doing and just get them <laughs> and open start, and start. Start with the bookshop? Well, I think so. Um, well, well, actually, perhaps read them in chronological order. So the, the first one is The Golden Child, which is okay. this fantastic mystery novel that's basically the, the, the germ of the idea is the Tooth and Car Moon exhibition at the British Museum. So she creates a different. Oh, I've read that exhibition. one. That's a brilliant. Isn't book. it fantastic? It's just fantastic. It's fantastic. You know, <laughs> and the, the, <laughs> the most important thing about her is that you will laugh. I mean, she's a very serious writer. She's a very serious yeah. thing. But you will laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh at her brilliance, <laughs> the brilliance of her set pieces and her, and her dialogue. Her dialogue is second to none. She writes astonishing dialogue, and you can tell how how much she's loved by the quality of the people that they get to do the introductions to her stuff, you know, like Julian Barnes right, saying yeah, this writer yeah. will last longer than any other one. So, yeah, that's what I've been reading. Her and, and uh, a bunch of other stuff that I won't waste any more time talking about. But, Pen- yeah, Penelope Fitzgerald is my... Penelope Fitzgerald. ...is my great, great. passion at the moment. Yeah, sounds it. Mm. That's fantastic. And what about you, Olivia? What have you been reading? Well, I'm chuffed about that, actually, because I read The Golden Child last summer and thought I must read more and then completely forgot about it. So I'm going back to Ben Fitzgerald. Um, I am in the, the middle... Read the bookshop and The Gate of Angels. It's fantastic. Yeah, OK. Um, I am in the middle of Peter Aykroyd's biography of Blake, which came out, I guess, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And, you know, I love biographies of artists' lives, but, oh, my God, Blake's life is... It's just it's just getting worse and worse. And, um, you know, he's, he's, as Aykroyd says, the great genius of the 18th century. Can he sell a piece of work? Can he get anyone to like anything he makes? Absolutely not. He's this, he's this person who's just completely outside the mainstream. He's making work that nobody is seeing. When they do see it, they laugh at it. They think his poems are ridiculous and childish. They think his paintings engravings are incompetent and bizarre and on he goes he keeps making work he gets poorer and poorer closer and closer to the margins and I was just reading it on a train and I got to a point where um Blake um a soldier comes into Blake's garden and Blake pushes him out he's a very angry man who pushes him out aggressively and the soldier accuses him of sedition. And this is the moment when the Napoleonic Wars are just about to start. And Blake is about to go to prison. And literally on the train, I went, oh, my God. Because <laughs> you just have this feeling of, can <laughs> things get worse? Yes, they can get worse. And all this time, he's he's making, you know, not just interesting work, but a coherent, mystical universe that all of his poems and all of his pictures are a part of and it gets richer and stranger and it's just it's such a I'm I'm always interested in artists who sort of run against the grain but you have this feeling with him that it's so much to his detriment that he can't communicate what he's doing and he can't can't find an audience and yet at the same time the Mm. sort of hermetic world that he's making you know we're still nourished by now so he, he pays an enormous price for what he makes but if you saw that exhibition that was at Tate Britain last year you you see mm. like 
the astonishing richness of, of the world he made, but he never knew that anyone was interested in him. He died without knowing. So mm. it's a very sad story, but it's, it's gripping as well. And it's gripping to feel the texture of 18th century London. Peter Ackroyd is just such a great writer of London of the past, and he knows what people are, you know, he, there's Blake in his sheepskin breeches, you know what people are wearing, you know what people are carrying in their pockets, you know what the shops smell like. It's, it's just almost hallucinatory entering into it. So I'm loving that. Yeah. Fantastic. I um I, I just read uh, a book called The Widow Basquiat, uh, which was oh, recommended yeah, on this very podcast by Gabrielle uh, Krauser. Um, you've read it, Olivia, and it's yeah, it's just yeah. I'm writing it down. You, you, I think I was gonna I was gonna recommend it to both of you and Olivia. You've read it, but Howard would yeah. really love this, right? Because it's yeah, it touches on so many um things that we have discussed and that we could yeah. carry on discussing mm. that that crop up in both of your books but um also how and i think from a sort of prose and style point mm. as well yeah very beautiful anyway it's t- if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Time for the book off now, and this is where each of you get three minutes on the clock to tell us about a book you absolutely love and that you think we should all read. Um, so we've got to decide who goes first, who goes second. We've got to decide who's going to get the bell and who's going to get the bicycle horn at the three-minute mark. So there's lots of admin. Um, but before we uh, do all that, I just want to find out which books you're each putting up for the book off so howard just tell us the the book don't have to launch into your your pitch yet just tell us the book that you're putting up today john healy's the grass arena 
I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Fantastic. And what about you, Olivia? Um, Hadrian the Seventh by Frederick Baron Corvo. Oh, God. Oh, this is going to be good. Uh, now, Olivia, would you like to go first or second for the book? Or do you want to see what want to Howard's got? I want to go second, and I also have already voted for Howard's choice. I think <laughs> Howard's choice is the right choice. But I don't care. I'm doing it anyway, but I'm going second. Uh, and Howard... Um, you have uh, you have three minutes on the clock. You don't have to use the three minutes, but once we reach those three minutes, I'm going to cut you down okay. in your prime. So, would you like to be uh, rung out by the school bell or honked by the bicycle? Um, I think the bell is less less likely to give me a heart attack. So, I'd <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. that is bell. fine. Um, right then, it's it's over to you, uninterrupted. There's three minutes okay. on the clock to tell us about the Grass Arena by John Healy. Over to you. Okay, there's so much to say about this book. Let's just get some basics down. Um, so, the Grass Arena is an autobiography by the Anglo-Irish uh, writer John Healy that was published in 1988. And the book is kind of three times a miracle. This is the this is what I always think about um, about the Grass Arena when I think about it. So, what's the book about? Um, John Healy is born um, during the Second World War, London, Anglo-Irish family, no money, uh, an appallingly violent and abusive father. One of the great chilling openings of of any book I've ever read is the opening line of the Grass Arena, which is. Um, my father didn't look as though he would hurt anybody. So you know from the off, you know, that he's about to hurt, start hurting people. Uh, and so John suffers uh, the beatings and the abuse and the poverty and the racism for being Irish. And he escapes into the army where he's kind of um, fighting in boxing tournaments and already starting to drink extremely heavily. Uh, one of the things that struck me thinking about Olivia's book is that at the, quite near the beginning of the Grass Arena, John describes his first drink and he talks about the fact that up to that point he carried around what he imagined and felt to be a hump on his back that was made of all the tension and all the potential violence and the actual violence and the circumstances of his life and that drinking made the hump go away. And so of course he immerses himself in, in, in a life of hard drinking and violence and he can't, he gets kicked out of the army, he gets stuck into military prison, he comes in and out. And he eventually ends up in the, in the titular grass arena, which is the world of street drinking. You know, the meths and purple tin brigade, the people that, when I was living in Vauxhall, when the book was published, were living around the corner from me. And, and, the, and it was a world that I was very close to. I drank in a very hard drinking uh, Irish pub called the, the Royal Oak in Vauxhall and, and you know, that world was more familiar to me than the middle-class world that was being uh, written about in the kind of contemporary novels that were coming out in the late 80s, you know. So it had more kind of immediate resonance. Um, John writes about going in and out of prison. He writes about that world um, from the inside. Now, just consider this for a second, right? That John, how many people walk away from that life at all? How many people get sober and actually just walk away from that life? Very, very few. How many people walk away from that life and do what John did, right? So John's in prison and he meets a, a Brighton burglar called Harry the Fox. He says to him, what about if I taught you about a game that if you started to learn how to play it, you'd never want another drink again? And John, okay. So Harry the Fox teaches John to play chess. And somehow, 
through some miracle. John is a prodigiously gifted chess player. And he never takes another drink. You're kidding. It can't be three minutes. <laughs> Can you believe it? I haven't uh, even started. At the two-minute mark, I was so gripped, but also at the two minutes, I thought to myself, I don't think he's got into the... I don't no. think he's got into the strike. I haven't even started. And, oh. and yet, you, I mean, me and Olivia, Olivia's <laughs> read it, and we were both going, yeah, go on, tell us about it. You know, I want to know more. <laughs> just, uh, just, if I can just play two sentences, right? So, the, anyway, he comes out of prison. Starts playing chess. It's a very qualified redemption. We're not sure how it's going to work or anything like that. But the point is the book is written and the book is published. And what people always talk about the Grass Arena is the world that John writes about. Very, very few people talk about how beautifully John writes. That's the second miracle. That the writing is of such an extraordinarily high standard. That it's clear that he's read everything. You know, I've been lucky enough to talk to John a few times and he's read everything. You know. And the third miracle is simply that despite the fact that Faber and Faber did their, breath, did their best to kind of suppress the book after there was a, a fallout between John and his publishers, in which John allegedly made threats to, to Faber. Um, and then the book was suppressed, and John was basically, his work was kept out of print for about 15, 20 years, that the Grass Arena made its way back into print as a Penguin classic, and it survives as a, as a great, great, um, one of the most enduring British memoirs of the 20th century, in my view, a work of genius. Uh, wow. John's, and John's still writing, so... Sorry, I know that's four well, minutes or five minutes. But. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's all good. It means Olivia can get a few extra sentences in now on hers if she wants them. But we'll, oh, we'll come back and talk about it, Howard, uh, briefly in a moment because mm-hmm. there was so much in that and, and it was a lovely pitch. And, you know, I'm so, I felt so I bad bringing you out there. No, 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 you, you didn't. You didn't. Um, but you can have a little rest now. Have a sip of water. We're going to put three minutes back on the clock for you, Olivia. Okay, so um, it's over to you to tell us about Hadrian the Seventh by Frederick Baron Corvo. Okay, well, I was interviewing Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys, and we were talking about books. And I said, "What's your favourite book?" And he said, "It's Hadrian the Seventh by Frederick Baron Corvo." And I said, "I have never heard of that book." And he looked as shocked as a person could look and went, Olivia, you have to buy it right now. Obviously, I'm not going to go against Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys. So I bought it and it is not like anything I've ever read. I've read an awful lot of books and Hadrian Seventh immediately just feels like it's something utterly other. It was published in 1904 and... It is written in the most heightened, um, rich, lavish language that it makes Oscar Wilde sound like Raymond Carver. It's it's very opulent. Um, it is about. It starts by describing this very poor man in London, embittered, angry, jealous, but very sort of um, aesthetically minded, and he's very angry because he wanted to become a Catholic priest. And lo, two cardinals appear and they come to talk to him and they say, we think this great travesty has happened. You should have been a priest 20 years ago. Why did it go wrong? And he explains all his embittered hatred of all these priests that crossed him. They say, well, you can become a cardinal. About three minutes later, the pope dies. There needs to be a new pope. And somehow, by a sort of believable series of happenstance, this man becomes Pope, Hadrian VII. 
so he ascends to a position of utter power. This is a wish fulfillment narrative, and you can feel in every bone of it that it's a wish fulfillment narrative. He becomes Pope and he starts changing everything. He's the most powerful man and he starts to crush his enemies and honour his friends and, well, meddle in world history in all sorts of extraordinary ways. But the language, I've written down a few phrases. Floculence delineated, tumultuous, sumptuous splendour, flibbity gibbet of flighty, frothy fever. I mean, it's written and often he makes up his own words because he just despises our incompetent and impoverished language. So you finish this book, I'm going to cheat slightly now, you finish this book and you think, well, that was extraordinary. Scenes of utter ravishing beauty, very strange. All the time it feels like it's written by a man with an almighty chip on his shoulder. And then you read The Quest for Corvo, which is a book written after Frederick Rolfe's death. And it is about Frederick Rolfe, the man himself, who clearly is the model for Hadrian VII, the Pope. Also wanted to become a priest, also was cast out of the priesthood, also very talented, also embittered, but sadly did not become Pope, what he really would have liked to have been, and instead was an artist and writer absolutely on the periphery, on the margins, and he ended up dying in Venice. <laughs> it's very hard! <laughs> <laughs> but, Lo, you get a few extra sentences Because I've cheated, so you can... You know. Before he died, before he died, he was being rode around Venice by four gondoliers as only the royalty are and then drowning rats in buckets and he died in his favourite restaurant indebted to everybody and left behind you know no reputation nothing and yet this book which was published at the time and had a tiny circulation has survived because it bewitches people because it when you read it it's not like anything else so you know People pass it from hand to hand saying, you must read this and you pass it on. You can't help it. It's it's addictive and extraordinary. So I recommend it to all. Wow. Oh, wonderful. What an amazing uh, set of <laughs> pictures there. I, I mean, I loved it. And I again, sorry for having to interrupt you both because I knew there was more there. Um, with your horrible horn. <laughs> with that dis- dis- horrible, disgusting noise. Um, Howard, yeah. the, the fact that you, you started this pitch with the, sort of the three times a miracle um, is just such a great way in. Um, and I know that there was so much to talk about and you didn't get to do it all, but I, I do think, you know, as I said, in just those three minutes of, of setting it up, I was absolutely hooked and want to read this book. And, and Olivia was probably thinking the same, even though she she's already <laughs> she's read it. Um, it just sounds, uh, you know, a bit unlike unlike anything else or certainly unlike you know other autobiographies um and and the fact that it sort of resonated with you a bit because of you know that 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 where you were living in the 80s and stuff it's yeah it it just sounds incredible i've been obsessed with john's story for 30 years you know because what happens is that as i say the book everything that's surrounding the book is a kind of cautionary tale for the outsider writer and the and the working class writer working class artist so there's a, wonder, there's a, a wonderful film made by a filmmaker called Paul Duane called Barbaric Genius, which is a film about John Healy's life and specifically about uh, the controversy surrounding, surrounding the grass arena. 
and in it, John talks about uh, some advice he was given when when he when the book he was trying to get the book published uh, from Joe Spence, the late photographer who was who helped. I think was pretty much instrumental in getting the book published. But Joe said to John, "You've travelled across galaxies to get this far, but now you're about to beat the middle class, and they're the most dangerous enemy of your life." So John's been writing constantly all this time, and my I do bend people's ear about it because I I never feel that I'm selling people a pup. You know what I mean? If you pick up the grass arena and you read the first paragraph, you are instantly aware that you're in the presence of the real thing. Yeah. And the real thing is very, it's very, they're very thin mm. on the ground. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you pick up John's stuff and it just, it stays with you. You pass it on to other people. You find out more about him. I'd urge everyone to go and have a look at that movie, Barbaric Genius. You know, um, and if you haven't read The Grass Arena and you haven't read Penelope Fitzgerald and you haven't read uh, Quest for Corvo was A.J. Simmons, wasn't it? Did he, yeah. Did he write that? Oh, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah. So. Read everything, but definitely read John Healy. Um, and, <laughs> and there's the 2008 uh, Penguin Classics edition, isn't it, that we can, yes, we yeah, can get? Yeah, so, you can. Uh, and, you know, and you can buy, you can get The Metal Mountain. It's published by Struck and Press. The really exciting news, of course, is that John uh, has been in the process and has drafts finished of a sequel oh wow wow okay that is exciting so (laughs) i love that both of you have the same thing of uh, with both of these books that you can just you just just have to sort of pass it on the feeling that you have to pass it on i love that olivia that that was uh what neil tennant effectively did right you you were you were chatting to him and and that's what he did to you yeah absolutely and I'm sure somebody had done it to him and it's that kind of book where it's like oh my god you haven't read this and it's interesting I quite often put pictures of books on Instagram and when I put a picture of it up I got so many messages from friends going that's my favorite book and I was like why did you never mention it (laughs) to me but it's clearly a book that people really go wild for partly because the hinterland of it is so enormous you read the book and you think that's sort of magnificent and strange but his own story is so fascinating. It's a it's a sort of rabbit hole that you can keep yeah. travelling and travelling down, finding out more strange details. And I didn't say this in the three minutes, but um, the quest for Corvo is really like it's a landmark work of experimental biography. It's like a detective story. He's he's just describing the process, like a Janet Malcolm. He's describing the process of you know, finding this manuscript and finding this document or a cache of letters that just suddenly open up a whole new side of this lost person. So the two of them go together and I'm already ordering more and going <laughs> deeper into it. And I, I feel like, um, you know, that's that's that kind of book is gold dust, really, where you can just keep travelling with yeah. it. it. It opens up more and more. And do, would you say that, that we have to read Hadrian's Seventh and then read The Quest for Corvo afterwards? Is that is that the way to do it? Absolutely. No question. You have to start with Adrian the Seventh. You have to read what his fiction is to have this sense of who the hell wrote this? (laughs) What is going on? I don't understand what's going on. And then you realise how much of it is just lifted from his life, right down to, you know, every resentment that Hadrian describes, every enemy that he describes is a very lightly disguised real Mm. person. And as AJ Simmons sort of pulls the mask off and reveals these people to you, just going, oh my God, but it was worse. What happened was worse. And the sort of, um, you know, this is this is over a hundred years ago. And yet, it, especially the quest for Corvo, it feels utterly modern, the most extraordinarily modern book. And this kind of 
decadent world, but a world of total poverty as well. And it, it really, um, it's all consuming. Yeah, it's very, it's I very mean, it's, it, that too sounds, well, both of them, um, you know, Hadrian the Seventh and the Crystal Corvette, they just sound fascinating. I want to read those as well. I love how uh, both of you have sort of chosen <laughs> in, in your book off choices, very similar themes again. You know, this is, I mean, it was just, it was the pairing that was meant to be, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So we've got to say that the winner, the winner is John Healy. It has to be John Healy, doesn't it, Howard? Yes. Yes. Well, this we is the thing. It. I mean, for me, it is a, a, a great wrong, uh, a kind of uh, an episode of great shame in, in the publishing culture and history of this country. And John remains someone who suffers from the consequences of that. And the more readers he can get, yeah. you know, the better. Uh, and the, as I say, I'm not sending anyone a puff. It's, it's, it's a magnificent, magnificent yeah. book. The winner should be John Healy for once, yeah. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. Yeah, he he deserves he deserves this win having yeah, having. He does. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and Olivia, you you are all for it, so that's great. I'm so, all for you it. Know, it. It all makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Everybody by Olivia Lang is out now in hardback, and the Painter's Friend by Howard Cunnell is also out. Both available from Picador. Um, what an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast. We we could have carried on for hours, I fear, and um, <laughs> perhaps we will do possibly in person uh, later on in the year. But um, Olivia Howard, what an absolute pleasure! Thank you both for for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. Well, thank you. Thanks ever so much. And it was it, it was so nice to talk to you, Olivia. Yeah, thanks so it's much. It's been really really nice. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.